Ezekiel 47, beginning in verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east, for the house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from the south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate, and led me around on the outside to the outer gate by way of the gate that faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. And when the man went out toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits. And then he led me through the water, reaching the ankles. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water, water reaching the loins. And again, he measured a thousand. And it was a river that I could not ford, for the water had risen, enough water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. He said to me, Son of man, now, have you seen this? And then he brought me back to the bank of the river. Now, when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river, there were very many trees on one side and on the other. And then he said to me, These waters go out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arabah. And then they go down toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there will be very many fish for these waters go there and the others become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it from Engedi to Enegleim. And there will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds. Like the fish of the great sea, very many. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. By the river on its bank, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month, because their water flows from the sanctuary, and their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. Fathers, we open up to this great passage of Scripture before us. And we seek understanding and and some illumination as to what Ezekiel saw and what he's talking about here. I pray that you will give us clear-thinking minds. But more importantly, Father, I pray that our spirits will be open to what Your Spirit is doing in our lives and in this fellowship. I ask, Father, that we would continue to get out of the way and let Your Spirit work. And I pray that You would give us some insight into these things this morning that we might walk in the Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. Cheryl and I had a, a really interesting experience last week. We went down to Southern California. Uh, we were invited to go down to an awakening reunion. Awakening, Student Awakening was the ministry that, that we ran down in California in the 90s at Not Having a Christian Church. It was our youth ministry. And uh, some of the girls got together, and now they're all, they were teenagers then, they're all you know, 35 years old with kids, which freaks me out. And so they called us up and said, would you come down and, and maybe speak for this and, and be here? And we said, sure, we'll go. We had a wonderful time. Uh, Saturday was a great day of, of being with them. A week ago Saturday, that evening, we had the actual reunion itself. It was bittersweet. Because on the one hand, it was fantastic to see all these students again. And yet, it was, it was a little heavy. Because it's been 15 years. And a lot of these students are... Well, it's been 15 years of pain for a lot of them. 
I began to realize that through the day on Saturday, talking to one after the other about how much uh, life had hit. You know, when you're in high school, you think, ah, i got the world before me, it's all going to happen the way I have. You have these dreams, and they start to fall. And that's happened to so many of these kids. A lot of them have go, gone through multiple divorces and uh, multiple life challenges and problems. And so I, I just sat there watching this and asking the Lord, you know, what, am I, what am I supposed to do with all this? We had the reunion Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. We basically hung out at our friends Jim and Helen Passmore's pool for three days, which was great. Um, we got off the plane in Long Beach. It was 92 degrees last week, so we needed to be poolside. But what was cool is that these students began to come and hang out and visit. They, they knew we were staying there, and, and during the day on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, just kind of showing up and hanging out, hang out for a few hours, and then they'd leave. And I, I watched as several of them brought their own kids, which, again, is just weird. Uh, because they weren't allowed to have kids when they were in my student ministry. <laughs> it was one of our fundamental rules. You're not allowed to. So they, they were coming and, and bringing their kids, and a lot of their kids would jump in the pool and swim. A lot of the kids were real little, and so the parents over and over were warning them about getting into the deep end. Stay in the shallow end, stay where it's safe. You know, some of the dads had to get in the pool with them, keep them from drifting. And I sat there watching that, and I already had uh, Ezekiel 47 on my mind all week, and I was thinking, wow, what a metaphor. What a powerful picture. I was thinking that Student Awakening Ministry was all about getting kids first into the pool and then training them up to swim in the Spirit so that they could be in the deep end. And I was looking at these students and saying, you know, there's some here who aren't even in the pool. There are a lot of them who are in the shallow end and have never gotten out. They're ankle deep or they're knee deep in the water. That's, by the way, that's where the frogs swim. Knee deep in the water. And very few of them, very few of them were in the deep end. There were some who were. Some who were active in ministry, some who were involved in their churches, some who were just loving Jesus more today than they did back then. And I thought through all that, I thought, this this is what we are supposed to be about. You know, getting into the deep end. See, that's what God wants. And this is what... In the flesh, we misunderstand. And I think not only in churches, but all humanity doesn't get this. That God doesn't want you to come to church. You see, religion is shallow. That's the shallow end of the pool. He wants you to swim deep. He wants you in the presence of His Spirit. He wants you absolutely submerged in over your head. That's where God's calling you. That's His desire for every single one of us. And we're going to talk about getting there this morning. And I think there's a key to that, but I'm going to hold on to that for a few minutes. Before we get there... While this river is a great picture of some deep spiritual truths, it's also a real river. This is an actual description of an actual river that will be flowing in the Millennial Kingdom. And I want to be very clear about that and clear about our understanding of when this takes place and the fact that it is actual. Back in around the 3rd, 4th century... There were men like Augustine who began to come out and spiritualize or allegorize Scripture. And it was one of the most devastating things that has ever happened to the church. Because in spiritualizing the truth, they took what was real and actual and made it ethereal. And people stopped looking for the actual truth. Well, this is an actual river that we just read about we're going to look at closely here. I love that Spurgeon had this to say. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who lived 1832 to 1892. So there in the 19th century wrote, Let us rejoice that Scripture is so clear and so explicit upon this great doctrine of the future triumph of Christ over the whole world. 
We believe that the Jews will be converted and that they will be restored to their own land. Spurgeon said that before Israel was in existence. And yet he believed it. Why? Because he thought that God meant what he said. He says, we believe that Jerusalem will be the central metropolis of Christ's kingdom. We also believe that all the nations shall walk in the light of the glorious city which shall be built at Jerusalem. We expect that the glory which shall have its center there shall spread over the whole world, covering it as with a sea of holiness, happiness, and delight. And Spurgeon says, for this we look with joyful expectation. You see, where things like this river, this temple complex, the millennial kingdom, where it gets spiritualized, you take away expectation. Well, is that going to happen? Nah, it's just a picture. And so you don't have anything to look forward to or expect. And yet God says, I gave this to you with explicit language so that you could look ahead and that you could know what's coming. And so I encourage you as we study these things this morning to joyfully expect to see this river. You're going to see this river. If you are in Jesus, you're saved by the blood of the Lamb, you're going to see this river with your eyes and it will be a marvelous and remarkable thing. The prophets were clear on the matter. This river is going to roll. Joel 3, verse 18. The prophet Joel said, In that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine, the hills will flow with milk, all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Zechariah the prophet, in Zechariah 14, verse 4, said, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north, the other half of the mountain will move toward the south. Why? So the river can go through. This is the causeway of the waterway that we just read about in Ezekiel 48. It's going to run right up the middle of that split of that valley in the midst of the Mount of Olives. Zechariah goes on and says in verse 8 of chapter 14, In that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea, and it will be in summer as well as in winter. Now, while this river is not allegorical, it is clearly supernatural. And you need to get this because there are some things this river does that a river doesn't do. That a river literally by physical laws cannot do. God never violates any of His spiritual laws. But He violates physical laws all over the place. You know, He loves to violate the physical laws. Well, what are you talking about, Rick? Jesus walked on the water. That's a violation. Okay, Manna from heaven. Violation. God can do whatever He wants with the physical laws. And so though we have certain physical laws and attributes that go with the flow of water and rivers today, these will not apply for this river in the Millennial Kingdom. Check this out. Some things to note. First off, note that this river is constant. It's constant. Zechariah said, in summer as well as in winter. Well, that's not the way it is in Jerusalem today. In Israel. In the summertime in Israel, there are brooks and wadis all around Jerusalem and all throughout Judea that flow with nothing. They are bone dry. Because unless the rains are falling, nothing's rushing. You've got to have the rains. If they have a good winter, some of those will will flow for a while, but eventually they all go bone dry. This river is always flowing. Summer, winter, it doesn't matter. The river is constant. This river, secondly, I love this, is co-directional. What river do you know flows in two directions? I'm talking about the current flowing. 
This river is described by, you know, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Joel comes out from the temple, goes down off the temple mount, and then it splits. Half of it heads directly out to the east, which is the way it's flowing to begin with. The other half of it takes a U-turn and heads out to the west. Rivers don't do that. This one does. Half heads out to the eastern sea, the Dead Sea. The other half heads backwards to the Mediterranean Sea. By the way, you can always track the seas in Israel. There's the Dead Sea, the Med Sea, and the Red Sea, and that's how you know kind of where you stand. Okay? So it flows two ways. It's co-directional. Ezekiel tells us something else supernatural about this river. It's cumulative. It's cumulative. In other words, it increases in volume as it goes. Now you might say, well, I've seen rivers do that. I've seen rivers that are small in one place and large in other places. Not without tributaries, you haven't. Not without additional streams flowing in to build up and cause the river to enlarge. This river increases in volume all by itself. There's no extra flow coming into it. It comes from one source and just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger as it goes. So this river is cumulative. Look at verse 1 of chapter 47. He brought me back to the door of the house, the house being the temple, there on the temple complex in the millennial kingdom as we've been studying. And behold, the water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east. The house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under on the right side of the house from south of the altar. So the altar is right in front of the door of the sanctuary. Come out the sanctuary, there's the altar. So this little river, this little brook or stream begins right there and runs just to the right side if you're standing at the door to the right side of the altar, south of the altar. Okay. He goes on and says, He brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside by the outer gate by the way of the gate that faces east. Now why did he do that? Why didn't they just walk out the east gate and look at the water right there? Anyone? It's Jesus' gate. That is the gate of the prince. Nobody goes through that gate. And so even Ezekiel was led out the north gate and around to the front so he could see the water coming out by the east gate. And it tells us, Behold, water was trickling from the south side. So immediately to the right, or the south of the entrance, to the holy place of the sanctuary, a small spring quietly bubbles up. I like that. You know, I like, I like that, that idea that, that there during the days of sacrifice or there when, when you're present in the temple court, there's going to be that stream that just kind of runs right through the court. And on quiet moments, you'll be able to hear that little bubbling, trickling sound. You know, something peaceful about that. And that's going to be going on. But it's, it's very small. It's just a little brook. Just a, a little stream. But it starts to increase in size. And again, it splits, half going east, the other half going west. Verse 3 tells us, When the man went out toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits, and he led me through the water, water reaching the ankles. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the loins. Again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not ford. For the water had risen enough water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. So this river is cumulative. And sticking with the the long cubit, which is a cubit of 21 inches, what we're talking about here is the man measures 1,000 cubits. That's 1,750 feet from the sanctuary. And the water's ankle deep. So that's about a third of a mile, and it's just ankle deep. He measures another 1,750 feet, and the water is knee-deep, another 750 feet, and the water is now waist-deep, and it's about a mile down the road here, and it's only to the waist. 
another 1,750 miles and suddenly unswimmable. It's a river that cannot be forded. It's huge. It's massive. And it's flowing. Verse 6 goes on and tells us, He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? And then He brought me back to the bank of the river. It's clear Jesus wanted Ezekiel to get the measurements down. Right? I mean, he's got this measuring line. He's measuring all kinds of things. He spent several chapters prior to this measuring the temple and saying, write this down, Ezekiel. Okay, I got that. I got the measurements. And he's with him. And we have all these measurements now in Ezekiel 40 through 48. Measure now the distance of this river in all three parcels or all three points and then on out to the furthest point where it suddenly gets big. I want you to measure this. I want you to write it down. I want you to detail these measurements. If this is an allegory, why do that? What a waste of time. Just say there was a big river flowing. You know, started small, got big. That's all you need to know. It's specific because it's literal. It's written down because it's actual. And the details are important. Read on. Verse 7. Now when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river there were very many trees on one side and on the other. And then he said to me, these waters go out eastern, uh, toward the eastern region and go down into the Arabah. And then they go toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. Now this is where it gets really interesting. Because there are some supernatural indications prior to this, but suddenly we see, number four, this river is not only constant, co-directional, cumulative, this river is curative. It is curative. There's healing in these waters. In fact, if you're reading the King James translation, it says, these waters shall be healed. The river flows out of the temple. That little stream getting bigger and bigger and bigger until it's a massive, raging, unswimmable river flows down into the Negev, into the Dead Sea, and it changes what right now is a Dead Sea. You never see fishermen around the Dead Sea today. Because there's no fish. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea. We love to go to the Dead Sea. It's a lot of fun to to head down there um, on our Israel tours. We'll do it again here this next March. And if you've never done this, You've got to do this. You've got to get in the water of the Dead Sea and float. Unbelievable. It's a bizarre experience. You, you, you get into it, you kind of sit down like you're sitting back into a lounge chair. And you just float there. You can stand straight up with your feet directly straight below you and you just kind of bob. <laughs> it's hilarious. And of course, then you get people like the Hoffmans who put mud all over their bodies and heads and everything. So it's a very frightening experience to see that. Because there's healing. Have you heard of Ahava? Ahava skincare products? They take mud out of the Dead Sea, they put it in bottles, and people buy it. <laughs> because it's healing for the skin. But these waters suddenly change. They become fresh. The word is Rafa in the Hebrew, and Rafa means to heal. So the waters from the temple come down and they heal this Dead Sea. Right now, the Dead Sea is 33.7% salt and minerals. Now, if that doesn't sound like a lot to you, understand that the Pacific Ocean at its most dense is 3.5%. 33.7% salt and minerals. It's, It's so dense with salt and minerals that literally when you get in the Dead Sea, they give you all kinds of warnings. You know, they say, don't swallow. They had a woman who swallowed a few years back and was rushed to the hospital because it began to dry out her insides. 
They say, uh, you don't want to get it in your eyes. You don't want to shave the night before. (laughs) (laughs) Enough said. So it's this dense, heavily salted water, but this river rushes into it and suddenly it's fresh. The waters get healed. The river rushes 1,388 feet below sea level. The Dead Sea is the lowest point on planet Earth. You go from the highest point in Israel to the lowest point on planet Earth, the waters rush down there and the sea becomes livable and fishable and it's absolutely massive. And where the healing waters go, guess what? Life happens. It just comes to life. It gets even better. Read on, verse 9. It will come about that every living creature which, which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there will be very many fish, for these waters go there and the others become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. It will come about that fishermen will stand beside it, from Engedi to Enegleim, and there will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, very many. Okay, this is a massive river. Now we've got fishermen along the river and down at the once called Dead Sea, and they're fishing, and they're hauling in massive loads of fish because everything is teeming with life. And I said this river's massive. We know where Engedi is. This river rushes down. It may break, by the way. I can't prove this, but what's interesting is in verse 9, the word for river is Nahal which is the same word that he's been using for river, but suddenly in verse 9, it's the dual form of the word. Which means it should read two rivers. Two rivers now rushing down. Now that may be because uh, there are two rivers, literally, that, that kind of break out and are flowing down to the Dead Sea. Or it may just be that the one river is so big, and it's so massive, that Ezekiel describes it as two. Twice as big as a river that you could imagine. Now, Engedi. Engedi is one of the places where it says it's flowing down from Engedi to Enegleim. So what does that mean? Engedi, there is east of Jerusalem. It's down there in the Arabah, and it's it's the place where David hid out from Saul. A bunch of caves and crags, and you can climb up in there, and we and we hike up in there when we go to Israel, and you can swim in the pools. It's, it's an amazing, beautiful place. Nobody's going to be swimming in those pools in the Millennial Kingdom. Because Engedi itself is going to be overrun with this massive river just rushing through that canyon, coming right down into the Dead Sea. Well, we know where Engedi is. Where's Enegleim? We're not really sure. Some believe, and it's entirely possible, that Enegleim is actually in the region of Qumran. Now, that might not mean anything to you, but you need to understand Qumran is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Qumran is about 22 miles to the north of Engedi. You get it? These waters are going to be flowing from Engedi to Qumran, 22 miles. The Mississippi at its widest is a mile and a half, just to give you a picture of this. And it all starts as a tiny little stream out of the temple, growing, getting massive, huge, spreading out down to the Dead Sea. Amazing. Verse 11 tells us, Its swamps and its marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. And that's good news. That's intentional. God's going to put salt on the table in the Millennial Kingdom. Which makes me happy. I like salt on my eggs, salt on my apples. Good stuff. He's going to make sure a hava stays open. You know, they'll still sell their products. But I think there's a, a more important reason that He makes sure that there is still salt available. And that is salt for sacrifice. 
We talked about this a week ago, Wednesday night. The salt for the sacrifice. That the sacrifices that happen in those temple courts, there in the Millennial Temple complex, are salted sacrifices. Why? Because salt is a picture of covenant. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13 says, Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Why salt? Because salt does not break down. And so salt in and of itself, the nature of salt, is a picture of God's covenant which never breaks down. That there will be salted sacrifices in the Millennial Kingdom. Why? Because God promised the Millennial Kingdom was coming. The Millennial Kingdom will have come. And at that point, sprinkling salt on the sacrifice goes, yeah, see? Covenant. He keeps His word. So there's going to be salt in some of the marshes and in in some of the little uh, areas there around, left there on purpose by the Lord. Verse 12. By the river on its bank on one side and on the other will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Number five, if you're tracking these things through, these trees are copious. These trees are copious. They are real, actual, unique trees. Because these trees, unlike trees on planet Earth today, produce fruit every single month. Fresh, tasty, wonderful fruit. Now, before Cheryl and I started on this whole new kind of way of eating, I won't even call it a diet, it's a way of eating. Um, I, I thought when the doctor told me I needed more fruit, I thought more Pop-Tarts because it's fruit. <laughs> there's, a, there's a thin layer of fruit right between the, the, in the pastry. Right, Josh? I mean, I, made sense to me. So I ate more Pop-Tarts. Didn't feel better. We've been eating a lot of fruit. And for the first time in my life, and I'm, I'm a little behind on this, but I'm starting to realize that, that some fruit is better in some seasons and, and not so good in other seasons, that it changes as we go. And especially if you're eating organic fruit, it really changes as it goes. And right now, in the fall, oh, the apples are good. They are so good. Like three months ago, they were wormy and had little brown spots on them, and they kind of sour, and it was just bad time for apples. But now, they're awesome. Oranges? Had an orange last week. Not so good. Not so good. I'm about ready to go back to Pop-Tarts on that one. Cause it's not, not so good. These trees, fresh, wonderful, tasty fruit every month. New fruit. Every month, new fruit is growing and being seen on these trees. A, a great meal. Fruit for our food. This copious fruit. Why is that? Well, verse 12 tells us why. It says they will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Well, what does that mean? These are healing waters. These are supernatural waters. These waters are flowing from the presence of the Lord. There's glory in them waters, gang. And as the waters flow down and the trees begin to root and sink in and that water comes up through the roots of the trees, they cannot help but produce fruit. And you're going to see this in all over the area. This massive river, all of these green trees, fruit everywhere, constant every month. You don't have to wait for the fall for a good apple. It's there every month. And it's because the waters themselves are powerful waters from the Lord. There is glory in the flow. Where the glory of the Lord flows, there is always fruitfulness. Not to mention good medicine tells us these leaves on these trees are for healing. Now, when I was a kid, we, we understood this. 
If we were riding our bikes and going off a jump and one of us crashed into the mailbox, right? Get some leaves! Because that's how you heal someone. They're bleeding and you're getting leaves and trying to pack it on their face. Did you do that? Maybe you didn't. We did. These leaves are actual leaves for healing. The word here for leaves or for healing is terufa, and it's the same word that was used for healing in verse 8. It's the same root word. Verse 8 says healing or fresh. Here it's medicine. The leaves are for healing. And so in the kingdom, these leaves will have actual medicinal value to them, and that's what I call affordable health care. <laughs> That's it right there. You don't need Congress. You don't need the President to push something through. All you need is these trees. And people will have the leaves and it will be about health and it will be about medicine. You know, there's going to be people living in this kingdom, people not yet in their glorified bodies, who will be living and breathing and acting and and doing what we do and they're going to get sick sometimes. They're going to need healing. The leaves are there. This is actual gang, literal stuff. Now, Let me ask you a question. Does this healing fruit tree lined river sound familiar to you? Have you heard about another river that's like this in the scriptures? Where would that be? Book of Revelation. Check this out. Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was a tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. But listen, this is not the same river. (laughs) The river in Revelation, as described and seen by John, is not the river that we're seeing described by Ezekiel. Two different rivers. There are a few people first hour who were shocked by that. What? Well, that's weird. How do you know they're different? Let me give you some reasons I know. First off, one river is in the Millennial Kingdom. The river John describes in Revelation is in the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem and the Millennial Kingdom are not coexistent. They are not at the same time. The timeline is simple. Maybe, you know, maybe next week we'll do this. We need to timeline this out. You need to get a big fat whiteboard and just walk it out. It starts with the harpazo, the rapture of the church. We get called up. We go home. We're with Jesus. At some point following that, there's a seven-year tribulation, God pouring out His wrath on this world, a Christ-rejecting and sinful planet. And then after that, Jesus returns and establishes this kingdom that Ezekiel is describing, Ezekiel 40-48, through the millennial kingdom. Revelation 20 says, for a thousand years, we're here, we're with Him. Now, if you're raptured, if you're caught up, if you go home to be with Jesus back before the tribulation, you return with Him, and you're already in your glorified body. Well, what am I doing on earth? You're part of the holy government. You're part of Jesus' righteous rule. That's going to be marvelous. But there are going to be people ushered into that kingdom in the flesh, humanity, living and breathing. During that time, children being born. And so that will be going on on planet Earth. That happens, John tells us, a thousand years. And I believe that is a literal thousand years because Revelation 20 says it six times. You know, the first time I might miss it. The second time, a little bit of duh. The third time, I'm starting to clue in. By number six, I believe it's a thousand years because he keeps repeating it. And he repeats it because we're so dense. No offense. After that thousand year reign, 
Then there is what's called the great throne judgment. Following the great throne judgment, what happens? The new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and the river that John's talking about. But the river in Ezekiel is in the millennial kingdom. That river that Ezekiel talks about, it flows out of the temple, right? The river in the new Jerusalem flows from the throne. You might say, well, Rick, isn't the throne in the temple? No, there is no temple in the new Jerusalem. No temple at all. John says in Revelation 21-22, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple. They are the temple. In the Millennial Kingdom, you've got multiple fruit trees lining this massive river, right? All kinds of trees with all kinds of fruit. In the New Jerusalem, one tree. One tree lining the river with multiple kinds of fruit on the one tree, the tree of life. You might say, well, how does that work? You ever seen one of those banyan trees, like in Hawaii? In, uh, I believe it's in Lahaina. There's a big banyan tree. And, and it, it literally has roots here and it comes up and then roots here and it comes up and then roots down there and it comes up. And it fills an entire park and it's one tree. That's what we're talking about. The tree of life. But this marvelous tree will have all kinds of fruit on it. And will be bearing fruit year-round in, in the New Jerusalem. In the Millennial Kingdom, the trees have leaves for healing. In the New Jerusalem, the one tree has leaves for the healing of the nations. A constant ongoing healing in that day. Why are they so similar? Someone might say, well, why, you know, you got your millennium and you got your, why, why not make them, why are they the same? What's the point of all that? It's like with the tabernacle in the wilderness. Okay, God had Moses construct that tabernacle to precise specifications. Why? The Hebrew writer tells us because that tabernacle was a picture of actual heavenly things. Well, isn't the heavens spiritual? Yeah, but we have a physical picture of what's taking place spiritually, and what's literal here is also literal there. The temple itself, a picture of the throne room of God. And so in the same way, we have this marvelous, wonderful river flowing throughout the millennial kingdom, and it's a picture. We will be able to say to those living there, see this river? A better one's coming. And I'm telling you all that because I I want to encourage you to joyfully expect to see both rivers. Look forward to the river flowing in the Millennial Kingdom. Look even more forward to the river flowing beyond that. What's marvelous about, especially about the book of Revelation and about God's Word, is that just when we think He's done, He's got more. It's not just Jesus comes, we go home, that's it, we're done. Pick up your harp on the way in. You know? I grew up with that. And I kid you not, that was boring to me. Really? I die and I float? I can go to the Dead Sea for that. I know, even the whole heaven thing was so ethereal and so out there. And so, you know, I, yeah, you die and you go to that other place. What's that other place? I don't know. Bling. <laughs> Bling. <laughs> like, you can have that. I'd rather have my bike and my leaves for healing. <laughs> and then I started reading Revelation and God said, you know what? It's so much bigger than that. You have no idea. I'm going to call you home to a place prepared for you and I'm not even going to describe it because it's just going to blow your mind and then I'm going to bring you back with me and we're going to spend a thousand years here on earth in paradise ruling and reigning and having a glorious time and then after that there's going to be a judgment and then, whoa, just wait I'm going to do a whole new thing new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem and we're going to go on from there and now I find myself saying well then what Lord? and he says, just wait for it wait for it 
He is never boring, I can promise you that. The river. The river's going to flow. In the millennium, the river's going to flow in the new Jerusalem. Joyfully expect that. Now, that's all the introduction. Here's what I really wanted to talk about. (laughs) That's the true and literal prophecy of Ezekiel. But there is, gang, a spiritual picture here that is as beautiful as the river itself. And it's something that I think is absolutely vital to our understanding how we move through this life to get to that first river. Jesus said, John 4, verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Remember where he was? In Shechem, there at the well. Uh, The Samaritan woman comes to the well. He's there and he begins to talk to her. And she offers, he asks her for a drink, actually. She gives him a drink and he takes some water. He says, you know what? Everyone who drinks of this is going to get thirsty again. And he said, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. What an amazing picture. That's exactly what the river shows us in the millennial kingdom. It starts as a spring and it flows to a mighty river. And Jesus says, that's, that's kind of how my spirit is. That's how my spirit is going to work. Is, is I, I start in your sanctuary, in the temple, the bubble up, and I start to flow. And my spirit begins to do more than you could ever have imagined that my spirit could do in your life. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and flows and flows until it is a raging river. That's what God's offering in His spirit. And we're like, eh, I'll have a sip, thanks. And we wonder why we're thirsty. Jesus says you'll never be thirsty when you drink of my spirit. The river, the river that Ezekiel talks about is a great picture. It's a real river, but it's a great picture of the work of the Holy Spirit. Think about this. The Holy Spirit is constant. He's constant, just like the river. Is there ever a time in your life where God is inactive? I sat there talking to these students of mine. And there was one who made a comment that awakening ruined her for the church. And it broke my heart. She said, it was so good back then and I've never been able to find anything to replace it. And and I told her, I said, you know what? I love you, but you're not looking at Jesus if you haven't found anything to replace it. You're comparing man's work to man's work. If you're looking to Jesus, and by the way, those of you in the Navy moving around a lot, don't look for what church compares to where you've been. You keep looking at Jesus, and wherever Jesus leads you, if you're looking at Him, the river continues to be constant. It is always flowing. He doesn't stop. We just look away. The river is constant. The river of His Spirit. Psalm 121. Let me just read this to you. Great psalm. It's one of the psalms of ascent. They would sing these as they were going up to the temple. It says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. There's the picture for you. He's kept Israel. He still has kept Israel. Israel's still here after all these years. He will never fall asleep on you. He is always with you. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Like the river, summer, winter, day, night, His care is constant. 
the flow of the Holy Spirit is a constant thing. He's co-directional. The Holy Spirit is co-directional. Now think about this. Just like the river in the, in the kingdom flows one direction west out to the Mediterranean Sea, so the Holy Spirit flows in a similar way with us out to the life of eternity. The Mediterranean is that huge sea out there. And it's, it's a big picture for someone standing in Israel. It's, to us, we would look out and see the Pacific. They would see the Mediterranean, and it's huge. And, and as the river flows to the sea, listen, the Holy Spirit is flowing into eternity. You are caught up in something, my friends, that is eternal. And the Spirit in your life is a seal of that. Paul says in Ephesians 1.13, You were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. You have the Holy Spirit, you have the seal, the promise of eternity. That river's flowing. And it ain't stopping until it gets you into eternity. How do I get that, Rick? Well, Paul says in Ephesians 1.13, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit. You hear the Word of God and you believe. And the Holy Spirit comes. And the water begins to bubble up. It starts in the temple. It starts to flow. But gang, that water is flowing into eternity. But I said He's co-directional. The river is flowing to eternity. The Spirit is leading into eternity. But just as the river flows east to the Dead Sea, so God's Spirit right now is flowing to the Dead Sea of your life. He is then and He is now. And He's flowing now to bring to life those things that in you might seem otherwise dead. Jesus said, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper that He may be with you forever. Well, good news, forever starts right now. John 14, 16. John 14, 26, Jesus said, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Right now, the Holy Spirit at work today in My life. Jesus said in John 15.26, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He'll testify about Me. And by the way, that means anywhere the Holy Spirit is active and working, Jesus is glorified. And if the Spirit is flowing in your life, then your thoughts constantly are going back to Jesus Christ. Because that's what He does. He reminds you of Jesus. He reminds you what Jesus taught. And so He flows both eternally... And He flows immediately. Like the river, the Spirit is constant. The Spirit is co-directional. The work of the Spirit is cumulative. Cumulative. He's already poured out His whole Spirit. God can't give any more of His Spirit. But we can receive more of His Spirit. And it all depends on how much we're willing to receive. How big the vessel of my heart? How big is my faith? How much am I willing to take in of the work of His Spirit? It's cumulative gain. Which means, if I'm living in the Spirit, the flow of the Spirit in my life right now should be greater than it was a thousand cubits ago. Than it was a year ago. Or five years ago. Or ten years ago. Have you been at one time in your life in the deep end, but now you're in the shallows? Then you're flowing backwards. That is not how the Spirit works. The Holy Spirit flows forward and is cumulative. You could put it this way, the further we go, the greater the flow. 
which means as we get closer to Jesus and closer to the end, there should be more taking place in our hearts individually and as a fellowship. Constant, co-directional, cumulative, and of course the Holy Spirit is curative. He has healing power in Him. A healing that comes from the glory. Isaiah 1.6 describes us well. It says, From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound. Only bruises, welts, raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Great picture of sin. But Jesus comes along, and, and quoting from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 60, Jesus said in Luke 4.18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Listen, Jesus says the Spirit is on me. And therefore, this is what happens. Because the work of the Spirit is curative. The work of the Spirit proclaims the Gospel. As the Spirit flows, He heals. He proclaims release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. He sets free those who are oppressed. I sat and listened to a former student of mine describe the past decade of his life. He said, it hasn't been good. And I sat and I listened and and my heart broke and I thought, you know what? He's oppressed. This, This former student of mine is oppressed. And where the Spirit of the Lord goes, people are set free from oppression. You might this morning, side note, you might be in the midst of of a messy situation. You might feel oppressed. You need the Spirit to flow over you. You need the work of the Spirit in your life because He sets free from oppression. These are the things that He does. By the way, don't forget what's on the riverbanks. If we see a great picture of the Spirit of the Lord in this river, what about the trees? What about the trees? What what might they represent for us? We don't have to look for Psalm 1, verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted beside the waters, By streams of water which yield its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither, in whatever he does, he prospers. In other words, he is fruitful. Jeremiah picks up on that same thing and he says in Jeremiah 17 verse 7, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. He'll be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not and, and will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. Get that. The trees, gang, the trees are a great picture of those who trust the Lord, of those who delight in His Word. And if that's you, then you're supposed to be copious. Copious in your fruitfulness. That's the deal. If, in fact, the river of the Spirit is flowing in your life, then fruitfulness is what He calls for. It's what He does. Turn in your Bibles real quick over to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Where Jesus describes, and I'm just going to pick out a few verses here to show you. But Jesus describes, I believe, a life lived in the flow of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God. The same Spirit He promised to pour out. Listen to this, John 15, verse 2. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So the idea is whatever fruit you're bearing in your life today, Jesus would like you to bear more. And He's going to do whatever it takes to help you bear more. And if you're not bearing any fruit, when it says He takes you away, it doesn't mean He casts you out. It means He pulls you aside. It means He has a little conversation with you. What's up with the you know, fruitlessness? But if you are bearing fruit, He's going to prune you, and that may be uncomfortable, but He's going to do it so that you can bear even more fruit. Skip down to verse 4. Abide in Me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in Me. I am the vine, verse 5. You are the branches. He who abides in Me and I in Him, He bears some fruit, sometimes, a little bit, maybe. You know, perhaps, if, if He feels like signing up. No, I'm sorry, it doesn't say that. He abides in Me and I in Him, and He bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Skip down to verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Bearing fruit, constantly bearing fruit, copious amounts of fruit. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give to you. You are called to bear fruit. Did you hear? Chuck Smith passed away. Chuck Smith died, pastor, kind of founding pastor of the Calvary Chapel movement, the Jesus People movement back in the 70s. What a life. He preached on Sunday. He spoke on his radio program on Tuesday. And then I believe he died on Wednesday. Right after that. So, so he had a normal work week. The man never retired. The man continued bearing fruit and will, by the way, continue bearing fruit even though he's not here. It's amazing to me how lives bear fruit and continue to bear fruit when we are in the flow of the Spirit. So why don't I see more fruit in my life? You ever ask yourself that question? Ever wondered that? You're sitting in a teaching like this and you go, well, that's great, bear fruit, but... You know, I pray. I read my Bible. I go to church once a week whether I need to or not. Imagine if we showered that way. The people used to, which is why Sunday dinner was always on Sunday. You know that? They didn't have dinners on Friday night. Friday night was a bad night for dinner. Because it wasn't until Saturday that you had your bath. And then, then we'll have Sunday dinner when everyone's smelling okay. I do all these things, Lord, and I'm trying to imitate Jesus, but I'm not more fruitful. Here's the thing. Gang, the fruit don't grow where the river doesn't flow. The fruit will not grow where the river doesn't flow. And this comes to one of the biggest misunderstandings among believers today. This is what I wanted to tell you this morning. We are trying too hard to imitate Jesus. We're trying too hard to imitate Jesus. Aren't we supposed to imitate Him? (laughs) Isn't that what this whole thing is about, Rick? No, it's not. And that's where we got off track. The apostles at the last Passover 
were having the meal with Jesus and they were bummed out. And Jesus said to them, I'm going to Him who sent me, John 16.5, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. He calls them out on it. I know you guys are bummed. I, I see it in your faces, Jesus says. I'm telling you, I'm going back to the Father and you're all sad. Why are they sad? Well, they've been walking with Him for three years. They love Him. They love being with Him. And the more they're around Him, the more they act like Him, which is a good thing. So the imitation thing's working real well, but He's going to be gone now. He's going away. They're sad. And then Jesus unveils this truth. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send Him to you. Jesus was about to spring on them something that they could not have fathomed. Water too deep for them to understand, way over their heads. Up until then, all the apostles could have was imitation. Jesus says, I'm going away, I'm going to send my Spirit so that you won't have imitation anymore. You will have impartation. Understand this, gang. John 15.5, again, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do Nothing. And when we have a mentality of imitation, we're with Him in the fellowship here on a Sunday morning. It's all good. And then we leave and we are apart from Him. And so we're not fruitful. Because the mindset is an imitating mindset. And that's the misunderstanding. I I try to be like Jesus, but I can't. Listen, no one's like Jesus. None of you can be like Jesus. Only Jesus is like Jesus. Well, then so how can I take up my cross and follow Him? By impartation. By allowing His Spirit to take up residence in you. And now it's not you doing it. And it's not imitation, it's impartation. Like Paul said, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. The Holy Spirit in my life, the Spirit of Jesus... The Spirit of Christ is exactly as the river of Ezekiel and the river that John talks about in the New Jerusalem. An actual, real thing. And the Holy Spirit floods into me, flows out of me, Christ Himself living in me, and now suddenly, I'm bearing fruit. I don't know why. I don't know how it works. I don't have the power in me, but I have Him in me. And He does it. And the life, Paul says, which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. And that's the deep end of the pool. Only it's not a pool because the pool's enclosed and you can't go anywhere. That's the deep end of the river. And you get into that and there's no getting out. You are flowing and you are going and the Holy Spirit is doing it in and through you. And that's impartation, where God gives us the gift of His Holy Spirit, and the Spirit functions, and then I bear fruit. Why aren't you bearing fruit in this life? We don't bear fruit when we try to do things of our own accord by imitation. never works. Imitation is very simply religion. On the Feast of Tabernacles, that great fall feast of Israel... All the little sukkahs are pitched all throughout Jerusalem, those, those tents and the people are living in those and staying in those, and seven days go by. And one of the main aspects of the Feast of Tabernacles is what's called the water libation. 
in a grand procession, the priests would come out of the temple and they'd all be carrying these, these big pitchers, these vessels. And they'd walk and march through the town as the people are watching. It's the water libation. Come on, check it out. It's happening. And every day for seven days they do this. They would come down to the pool of Siloam. And they would take those vessels and fill them up with water. And then they'd make that grand processional back up to the temple mount, into the temple complex. They would come around the altar and they would pour the water out. And they did so to symbolize the provision of water during their time in the wilderness. Remember, that's what the Feast of Tabernacles is about. The tabernacles representing their tents pitched throughout the wilderness. And then the water libation about the water. Water from the rock, God provided. So they would pour the water out signifying that. It's the eighth day. The eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And the priests come out. And they're carrying those pitchers again. And they come down to the pool of Siloam. But this time they don't dip the pitchers in. They leave them empty, bone dry. They march back up through the city, back up to the Temple Mount, and then they march seven times around the altar. Does that sound familiar? What does that remind you of? Jericho. Why do they do it? On the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, there's no water in the pitchers because they march around that altar signifying Jericho. They've come into the land, the well-watered land. God has provided for us. We're here. Hallelujah. It's all said and done. We don't need water in the pitchers anymore because God's provided for us here in the land. It's the eighth day. And Jesus stands up. Two to three million people are all gathered around in the city. And Jesus stands up. Don't tell me Jesus wasn't absolutely clear about what He was doing and who He was. He stands up in John 7.37. He cries out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in Me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. It's one of those moments, I'm I'm convinced of this, where the apostles were going, I'm going to go get a shawarma over here. I'll be back, Lord. What's up? He cries this out. John says he's talking about the Holy Spirit whom those who believed in Him were about to receive, but the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Listen, gang, that whole water libation found its roots in Ezekiel 47. That's why they started doing it. And Jesus comes up at the end of this and they go and they have nothing in the pitchers. They march around that altar and Jesus goes, Who's thirsty? I can't even imagine what the priests are thinking. What? What do you mean? Who's thirsty? If you want to get into the deep end, into the major flow of the river of the Spirit of God, that's the first question. Who's thirsty? Are you thirsty for Him? Do you want that relationship with Jesus? I'm talking about a real and tangible relationship, not the religion that floods so many uh, buildings and churches throughout the world. Even ours sometimes. The flow of the Holy Spirit. Are you thirsty enough to dive into the unfordable river of the Spirit? And not just ankle deep. Yeah, I'll, I'll test the water. Not just up to your knees. Yeah, that's pretty good. If you stand in a river up to your knees, you can pretty much keep your balance, right? And not just water up to the loins. I'm talking about water that is over your head and is rushing so fast, if you step into that river, you're gone. You are gone. And God says, want to have some fun? 
Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about jumping on the chairs, and I'm not talking about some of the charismania that you, you hear about, which, by the way, I think is phony and pretentious. Because if you are living in the flow of the Holy Spirit, it is not about you. If you're trying to imitate Christ, if it's all about imitation for you, well, yeah, then you want people to see how well you're imitating Jesus and how well you're acting in the Holy Spirit. But if you have the impartation of His Spirit, all you want to do is bring glory and honor to Jesus. You want to get you out of the way as much as possible. Let it, let it all go to Him. The flow of the Spirit. There are two reasons why we have the Holy Spirit given to us, poured out into our lives now. Very simple reasons. And that is serving, and that is witnessing. And that's it. That's the flow. That's the deep end as I go. I become about service. I'm not worried about what I'm doing, how important my life is. I'm about serving others or witnessing to others. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That is serving the body. That's why the gifts of the Spirit are given. He also says, Acts 1, 8, Jesus says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. And that word witnesses, marteo. It's where we get our word martyr. And that's a very different thing sometimes than you see in some of the wildness of the Holy Spirit movements. It's impartation, not imitation. Look at this. Ezekiel 47, we'll finish. Verse 3. When the man went out toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits, and he led me through the water, water reaching the ankles. Did you see it? Listen again. Verse 4. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the loins. Again he measured a thousand and it was a river I could not ford for the water had risen enough water to swim in a river that could not be forded. So you could swim in it but you can't get from one side to the other. Once you're in that, you're gone. And I love this because he said, Son of man, have you seen this? And then he brought me back to the bank of the river. What does that tell us? It tells us that he led Ezekiel through the waters from ankle deep to unfordable. And then, when Ezekiel was in a place that he could not get out, the man led him back to the bank. And that's how it works with the Holy Spirit. He leads me. He leads me through these things. He leads me through the waters. Where are you right now in your life? Are you in the river at all? Are you ankle deep? Are you in the shallow end, kind of enjoying that imitation Jesus? Are you ready to go deep? Where the river flows. I believe the Lord would invite each of us into the deep end. If you're willing to go.